My name is Alex. I'm one of the pastors here at Woodside Lake Orion. And Pastor Jim, since his regards, he did return from Nepal and brought everybody back with him. So that's always a positive when you come back with everybody you left with on a mission trip. And uh, this week, as he was just sharing stories with us in all of our meetings and our conversations, some of the stories that came from their time there, they're heartbreaking. The stories that you hear about these young girls and these fathers and just really the entire family in these small little villages up in the mountains of Nepal and what they face, what they're trying to fight against, fighting against human trafficking. The things that they were able to see just blows your mind. And it reminds us, it reminded me that we live truly in a dark place. Maybe we don't see it all the time here in Lake Orion, Michigan. But it's there, and it exists, and it's even here in our place as well. And so I'm excited for him to come back. He'll be here on Sunday, this coming Sunday, to be able to just share more stories of what God showed that whole team there, and also to continue in our approach into Easter, which is crazy to think that we're already almost to April. Sad, right? Uh, but you're welcome for the sunshine today. It's kind of an example of maybe what spring is like. We'll see how long it lasts, so don't get our hopes up too much. Um, but this uh, missions trip that Pastor Jim and some of our uh, team went on, it's one of those things, even this week we were talking as a staff, all of Woodside Bible Church's staff, we were talking about why we do missions in the first place as a church. And really since quarantine, this year is really the first year that we've been able to really kind of put some focus and emphasis on it. And we've got a lot of trips planned. We've already sent some out already this year. And we kind of categorize our trips into different themes. Some are purely evangelistic, where the intention is that you go and you share the gospel with individuals. Maybe it's on the street corner, maybe it's in a cafe, maybe it's in someone's home. But it's while you're there, you're sharing the hope in the good news of Christ. Others are more compassion-driven. It's an opportunity to go and see what the ministries that are currently operating there, what it is that they do. And we send a team to go and just simply help bolster them, to support them tangibly. Maybe it's by packing things, maybe it's by building things, whatever it could be. And that's another category of trips that we do. In our campus, we're taking one more trip uh, this summer to Costa Rica. And it's one of those compassion ones where we're going to go and we're going to build a home. And when I say build a home, don't think Gross Point. If you're from Gross Point, no shame on you. Well done. But think of a 700-square-foot home for a family of five. All the materials are there. All the tools are there. All the contractors and the skilled laborers are there. And all we simply do is we go and we help them put everything into place for a family that can't afford a home. Some of these homes, the price range costs simply five to $10,000, which is mind-boggling when you look at our housing market today and you look at the things that we lament over in our own market. And so, but this, uh, this missions trip is an opportunity that we want to take families on. So we're looking at families, kids eight years of age and older, to be able to go as a group to go and just 
build a home and serve the village and the local community that's there. And so if God is stirring anything in you where you're like, hey, that'd be really interesting to go, the deadline for that trip is coming up fast. You can go online, go under missions on the website, or you can come talk to me and get more information. But it's a great opportunity. I'm going, I'm planning to take my kids with me, and it's going to be a great way to kind of show them the reality of the world around us. Because it's really easy to get insulated in our own little circles, right? It's really easy to kind of just stay focused and just do our own thing, have our own rhythm, and sometimes forget about the realities that other people face in other parts of the world. And going back to those categories of trips, you know, if you're like me when you grew up and you heard missions trip, maybe you thought in your mind, oh, I don't know. I'm not that good at remembering book, chapter, and verse. I don't know if I could share the gospel with somebody because I can't memorize the things I ate for breakfast this morning, let alone Romans Road and all the seven verses that go, that go along with that. And in evangelism, though, oftentimes, especially when we look at the life of Jesus, what we see him do, he interweaves scripture in his messages and in his ministry, but oftentimes he's telling people stories. And he's using these stories to make a connection with an individual, to help them to understand a deep truth, all the while showing them, hey, this is something, and I'm saying this in such a way so that it is understandable for you. Last week, we started a brand new sermon series called The Apostles' Creed, or Truth, The Essentials, Why Truth Matters. And we're focusing on the Apostles' Creed. Now, if you grew up in a more traditional high church environment, when you hear creed or you see uh, a, a call to recite something, I don't know what um, uh, emotions come up for you. If you're like, oh, I, this, this is odd. Or, hey, I didn't know we were a Catholic church. Why are we saying the same things in the same monotone, unison voice, right? But the Apostles' Creed, I want you to think about it like this. And Matt did a great job last week starting us off in the series but I want you to think about it in kind of a metaphor and an illustration that I heard this last week from a pastor down in Texas. And what he said, Texas is a great place, by the way. What he said was, he said, think about a creed or any kind of thing that you recite in church. Think about it in comparison to the sun and the moon. The sun is obviously our source of light. The sun is what gives us daylight. The sun is constantly moving in and of itself. There's all sorts of stuff going on inside the sun. I don't know what is happening, but there's science stuff that happens in it. It's alive, it's active, and it provides for us the things that we need here on earth. But every single day, the earth, I had to really write this down in my notes, the earth rotates and as the earth rotates, we no longer see the sun, but instead we see the moon, right? Listen, we just did astronomy in church. I know it's a little crazy. But all of a sudden we have the moon at night. And the moon on some of those scary nights when it's a full moon and your kids act crazy and your animals act crazy and all the things, you see so much in the dark because of the light coming from the moon. And if you remember your third grade science, the moon in and of itself is just a floating rock in space. Orbiting, technically not floating, but it's just a dead rock. So what is this moonlight? You can respond. It's the sun, right? It's reflecting the power of the sun, the light of the sun. It's reflecting off the surface of the moon to where then now we can see at night sometimes. 
that's how you need to view the creed. The Apostles' Creed is like the moon. In and of itself, it's just dead. There's no life to it. There's nothing uniquely special about it. All it's simply doing is reflecting the truth. And so when we look at these, the Apostle Creed and what we're doing over the next several weeks is we're taking the statements that we see in the Creed and we're looking to the scriptures, the source, the power, the center of all things, and we're saying, here's the Creed. Where did they pull this statement from in the Creed? Here it is in God's word. So that's how I want you to kind of process and think through the creed. I'm going to go ahead and put the creed up on the screen. Hopefully last week, you guys, if you were here, you got it in your worship bulletin. But let me show you the creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Pretty simple to kind of understand, right? I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All of these are statements that we see here in God's word. One of those phrases, sometimes you'll hear the Apostles' Creed say, instead of the holy universal church, it'll say the what? The holy Catholic church. Don't freak out. That word Catholic literally means universal. It means the entirety of the church. It means all of the churches together. When you look at the Apostle Paul, he describes there are many members of the body. There are many churches. There are many gatherings of believers. That is the universal church. All of the individual churches all around together who are all professing the same thing. The universal church. So, more than likely, we're going to recite the creed together. Probably not today, because I have no time today. But when we do, I want you to approach it not out of a place of fear, not out of a place of like, oh my gosh, this is bringing up really bad, like emotive memories for me. Just simply look at the statements. And as we go through this series and as we look at God's words, I'm going to promise you, you're going to see, oh, this is where they made the statement from based off of God's word. So just imagine that you get called to go on a mission trip. Imagine that God says, hey, I want you to go, and I want you to share your faith. Or imagine God says, hey, you don't need to go globally, you just need to go to your next door neighbor. Or you need to go to your cubicle neighbor. Or you need to go to that person that you go to the same restaurant every single day of the week. And all I want you to do is simply remember these statements and use these statements as you talk to them. Hey, why do you believe what you believe? What is it that you believe? Well, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus, that he was died, that he died, was buried, crucified. Here are the things that I believe in. So if God calls you to go on a trip, don't allow fear that you may not know book, chapter, verse of everything, but instead recognize that God has given us tools 
in aids to help us to understand and to communicate the truths of who he is. The Apostles' Creed came about, we think, in the second, late second, early third century, right? So this is still at the very beginning of the church life and church world. Most people did not have scriptures because everything back then was hand-copied, hand-written. So number one, it was difficult to find any. Number two, if you did find one, it would cost so much money because it meant that you paid someone to handwrite the text for you, for you to keep it in your home. Third, most people didn't know how to read. It was very illiterate. Society and culture, only the highly educated, which also meant highly wealthy individuals, knew how to read. And so what the early church fathers did was they said, hey, let's come up with a tool, an aid, to help our new believers, the people here in our church, let's, let's give them something to help them to know what their faith is really centered on. Thus we have the Apostles' Creed. And it was something that would be recited all together as they would gather together, they would stand together, and they would read these things. And each statement has so much power and significance, not only in their culture at the time, but for our culture today as well. And that's part of why as a church and as leadership, we wanted to go through the creed because we recognize that there are a lot of things out there that say this is truth. But in reality, they're not. There's a way to define truth or two categories of truth. Something called objective truth and subjective truth. Objective truth is anything that is factually grounded, right? An easy example, gravity. I don't care how you feel about gravity. It's there and it exists. There's not anything you can do to refute it. It's proven. It's scientific data right? That's the truth. It's objective, right? Eating at McDonald's every single day of your life will make you fat. That's an objective truth. No one laughed at that? Thank you. Thank you. But that's an objective reality, right? Like you can see objective truths being, hey, is this thing right here factually supported and are there concrete things that support this truth statement? There are other truths, the subjective truths, which are completely built in and focused in how you feel about that thing. Well, I don't know if I really feel that. I don't know if I really believe that because that's what they think. But like for me, like I'm going to do me. You do you, I'll do me. I know you may feel like gravity is real, but you know what? Like, shh, no, not me. I can defy gravity, Right? A subjective truth is something where it's so much of it is based in how a person feels or it's based in one person's own experience. And because that person experienced it, therefore they say, hey, because I experienced this or because I feel this, therefore it is truth. Are you guys thinking about maybe some hot topic issues that are completely centered and based in subjective truth versus objective truth? It's one of those moments where you're like, do we go down that road or do we just stay on the notes, right? We should, we should follow the notes, right? But when we consider objective versus subjective, as believers, even we are confronted with it. 
right? You can look in culture easy enough and you can see the things that people argue over, objective versus subjective. You can look in churches. There are a lot of churches nowadays that are diving into this conversation. Well, what's objective versus what's subjective? Hey, we feel like this doctrine or we feel like this principle of of God's word, it's a little oppressive and offensive. So we're going to just choose to kind of ignore it and skirt around it. Or you know what? We're just going to alter it because why not? So they're driven by that subjective approach. You see it also in individual believers. The person who says, hey, you know what? I know that this is true because I've read it in God's word, but you know what? I don't feel it very well. But if I alter this or if I change this just a little bit, it helps me to feel better about this truth about who God is and what God calls me to. And because I feel it a little bit better, that's what I'm going to believe is true. I've talked about this a couple of times, but this hot, this, uh, this word deconstruction, right? It can kind of really scare people, right? And what deconstruction in, is in and of itself is just simply asking the question, why do I believe what I believe? Do I believe it simply because my parents taught it to me and I've just kind of absorbed it and I've moved on with life? Do I believe it because my school taught me that? Do I believe it because I read it on Facebook? Do I, do I believe that because this, that, and the other? And to deconstruct means you begin to peel back and say, well, wait a second. Is this actually true? And again, deconstruction is not a terrible thing to go down. The issue is, is that when you begin to deconstruct based off of subjective feelings rather than objective truth. And you're allowed to deconstruct most things in our culture today, right? You're allowed to challenge everything. You're allowed to push back against everything so long as it doesn't offend another person's feelings. So truth matters. Understanding what is true matters. And as a follower of Jesus, we believe that this book is true. That everything in this book is right. That everything that is contained within here is not there by mistake or happenstance, but that it's God's word. And that because it's in here, we are called to understand it, we're called to know it, we're called to live our lives by it. So truth the Apostles' Creed. What is the Apostles' Creed reflecting back on? We're going to look today at the second part of the first statement. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and, go ahead and open up to Psalm 33. And this is another unique caveat about this series. Because the Apostles' Creed is not taken from one singular passage, it's kind of all over the place in the Scripture. So one week... We may be in the Old Testament. The next week, we may be in the New Testament. It may be an entire chapter. It may be four or five verses. So hopefully what you're going to experience is you're getting a little Bible study because we're going to be going through the scriptures over the next several weeks as we look at these creed statements and as we look at where would they pull this from and how do we understand it. So the very first part of our statement, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Let's stop right there. Is the word father an issue? To come out and say that God is 
the Father? Everybody should nod your head yes. That's an important issue, and it's the first stop we have to take on this little journey we're having today. Because God the Father in ancient times was still something that people were trying to wrestle with and understand. You see, in Judaism, in the Old Testament, there's only a few instances where God is referred to as Father. And most of them are in from the later prophets towards the end of the Old Testament time. But to call God Father, what that meant was you were saying that God is someone who is approachable. God is someone who's close. God is someone who sees you, who knows you. God is someone who is accessible to you. And so for a Jew to hear someone like, uh, let's pick somebody, Jesus, to come on the scene and say, God, my Father. Or when he instructs his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, this is how you should pray. Our Father, hallowed be your name. So for a Jew to hear God referred to as Father, it was a little like, wait, you can't say that. He's King of Kings. He's sovereign. He's Lord, he's Lord of Lords. He is above all of us. You cannot refer to him as Father. Because in their language, Father, again, was communicating this closeness, this connectedness, this intimacy between an actual, like, father and child. But for Jesus, when we look at his ministry and we look at the things that infuriated the religious leaders, not only was he calling God his father, but he was also claiming to be the son of God. Is fatherhood something that's celebrated in our culture today? Is fatherhood something that people look at in culture as a whole and say, you know what? Every young boy should strive to be a wonderful father. I think when you look at media, I think the answer is no. This idea of fatherhood, this idea of being a man, this idea of being what a father should be is not something that's super popular. Hey, you know what? We need to redefine what manhood actually is. We need to redefine what fatherhood is. Anybody could be a father. Just say you want to be a father and you could be a father. Like culture is, is focused in on how do we continue to attack the family. Right? I remember back in the day, uh, back in the day, like 10 years ago. <clears throat> but the big topic that every preacher would talk about is like, hey, look how culture is destroying fatherhood, right? And they would give examples of like sitcom fathers, right? Al Bundy. If you're under the age of 30, you probably don't know who that is, right? Homer Simpson, right? These aloof father figures, these aloof men who really don't have any investment in their family and all they're concerned about is themselves and what they want in life. But when we really begin to look in the scriptures and we see God as a father, how is it that men are supposed to be as fathers? I'm going to give you three quick things. These are free. Provider, protector, and pastor. Provider, protector, and pastor. When I say the word pastor, it doesn't mean you have to go into vocational ministry. 
What it means is, is that you are shepherding your family. You tend to them. You're aware of them. You're available to them. You see them. You correct them when you start to see them going astray. You provide a safe haven for them to be at. Provider, protector, shepherd. Is that how God fathers us? That's how God fathers us. That's how God shows himself to be our father. He does all of those things and so much more. I believe in God the Father. And so as Jesus begins to use that term in his own ministry, he is communicating God is approachable. God is accessible to you if you have faith in me. Is God the creator of all things? Yes. Is God the creator of every man, woman, and child? Yes. But is every man, woman, and child a child of God? When we really dig into the scriptures, the moment you become an heir, the moment you become part of God's family is when? When you put your hope and your faith, your belief in Christ Jesus. Then you are adopted into God's kingdom into God's family, and he's your father. God the Father, it's a powerful statement. And it's something that if we in our generation and our culture today are not having to fight extremely hard over for our kids and their, grand, and their kids, they are going to have to fight that battle. How can you say God is a good father when so many people's images of a father are abusive, oppressive, distant, unrelatable? The list of negative adjectives could go on. But God, our father, that was just the intro. God, the father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. When you hear the word almighty, what kind of comes to mind? Hopefully it's something of grandiose, right? Hopefully it's something of like, you know, a little power, right? Look with me here at Psalm 33. Tiffany read it for us earlier. We're going to start down here at verse 4. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts them in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. God is our father almighty and it shows up in the way that he created all things. How is it that he created things? By his word. So we worship God as Father Almighty because of the power of creation that comes about in his word. Look with me there at verse 8. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. You have to kind of feel the weight of that. The very beginning of all creation. All he simply had to do was speak, and everything came about. When you begin to look in uh, the Gospel of John, and you see John describe 
that Jesus is the word of God. There's power in just simply speaking. Almighty, powerful. All I have to do is breathe and things are created. Have you ever been on a trip? Maybe you're driving and you, you, know, you come across a bend and all of a sudden there's this beautiful landscape that comes about. Or maybe you go down south where there's sun and heat and warmth and you walk out onto that beach and you just see the pristine nature of things. What does it elicit within you? Besides, like, I'm so glad I'm not in Michigan right now. Besides that, wow, look at this. Look how beautiful this is. Maybe you've been to the Grand Canyon. Maybe you've been out west to the Rockies. Maybe you've been in other parts of the world where you see natural creation and you're struck by it. You're in awe of it. And the second thought and emotion that should come after that for you is look what God has made. He spoke it into existence. I was scrolling, which I know it's not always a great thing to do, scrolling on Facebook. They just discovered this brand new species of fish at the bottom of the Indian Ocean, four miles deep. Just fathom that for a second. Four miles, inverted, under the water. The deepest part of the ocean, as best as my research could show me, is seven miles. It's said that you can take Mount Everest, put it in the deepest part of the Pacific Ocean, and that the peak of Mount Everest would still be several thousand feet below the sea level. Folks, there's a lot of things that we don't know about our earth, but God knows every single detail, and he spoke all of it into existence. Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and he did all of it by simply speaking. Right? Look with me here. This stuff I just kind of geek out on. Look at verse 7. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, meaning it's just a big pile, and he puts them in storehouses. Like, think about that for a second. With how deep and how expansive and how it's hard to even wrap our minds around the depths of the oceans and how vast the waters truly are on this planet, God just gathers them up in a heap and puts them in a storehouse. He is almighty in what he makes. He's almighty in his creation. And he does it all simply by his word. How else is he almighty, right? He's almighty in his wisdom. Look with me at verses 10 through 17. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his inheritance. As his inheritance. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. A king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. A war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. We see his almighty in his wisdom. 
for the plans that he has for eternity. He brings the council of nations to nothing. We like to think that we're in control of things, right? I mean, I'll be the first to admit it. You can ask my wife. I always like to be in control. What this reminds us of is that all of our plans, all of our thoughts, all the things that we think is really right, in the end, God's like, no, it's not. I'm the one that provides all the wisdom and direction and plans for your life. All of the nations around the world who are scheming and plotting and trying to figure out how they want to do things here and how, how they want to do things there, all of that is for naught because unless we look to God in his divine wisdom for direction and guidance, all of it will be for nothing. He's almighty in his wisdom. His counsel stands forever. The things of God from 2,000, 3,000 years ago are still the same as they are today. When you read this book, which was written in ancient times, guess what? The stuff that it talks about, we still, we still deal with today in our culture, in our time. Because God's not foolish. God knows in his infinite wisdom, I have eternal plans for you. Look to me. Don't look to your own devices. Don't look to your own schemes and thoughts. Look to me, and I'll show you how mighty I am. Have you ever had a moment where you're like, you didn't know how anything was going to turn out, and then all of a sudden, it turns out. But it turns out in a completely different way than you ever thought possible. And in that moment, how do you respond? Like, wow, I'm pretty incredible. This is that McDonald's I ate earlier today. It really helped me get that insight I needed. Thank you. Or is it, God, your wisdom is so far beyond mine. Your wisdom is so far beyond mine. Thank you. I didn't even see it. Help me to see your ways. And lastly, how else do we see how is Father Almighty, how do we see that? We see that in his love for us. Look with me here, verses 18 through 22. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. The almightiness of God as our Father, we see it in his love and his deliverance of us. Does he have to deliver you? Does he have to save you? Does he have to provide for you? Yes, because it's in his nature to do that. Is it because of all the amazing things that you can do in life and all the potential that you might have in the future life? No. He simply does it. And his love for you is there and it's present and it exists simply because he sees you. You're his creation. He has divine wisdom. And he says, I want my creation to be a part of my family. I want them to look to me as Abba. Father. 
I will provide for them. And I will provide for them in such a way that it will dumbfound everyone else who looks and sees us. The Apostle Paul talks about how the gospel looks foolish to an outside world because it doesn't make sense that God in his love for creation would send his one and only son, whom he loves, to go and live a sinless life, to then go and be tortured and beaten and hung on a cross. And on that cross, for his son to cry out to his father, Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Father, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus, the son, dies, suffering the punishment that you and I deserve. But he doesn't stay dead. Rises from the grave three days later, defeats death. And by doing so, creates the opportunity for you and I, the creation of God, that if we put our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus, that God looks down at his creation and he sees Jesus standing in the middle saying, Father, they believe in me. Father, I paid the price for all of Alex's sins. Father, they, he, they are redeemed. They're restored. Bring them into fellowship with you. And God looks at you and says, my son, my daughter, I see you. I love you. Listen to me. Go where I tell you and share my name with others so that they may have the peace and the comfort and the joy that you're experiencing right now because you follow me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, in creation, in wisdom, in love. He's the maker of heaven and earth. Do you see how much can be packed into that? Do you see the truth of God's word reflecting in a statement that you can memorize and learn and go and share that with the people that God puts in front of you? As we continue to worship this morning, worship loudly. Worship with passion. Just like at the very beginning of Psalm 33. Shout for joy to the Lord. Praise. Give thanks to the Lord. Sing to him a new song. Play these instruments up, up towards him. And do so with loud shouts. Let's worship our God who's our father, who's almighty, and who is our maker of heaven and earth. Let's pray. God, thank you that sometimes we just need to be reminded of how truly great and powerful you are. Thank you, God, that we can look at something that created by man was simply meant to be a reflection of what your word says. And Father, as we consider our view of you, Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to ground our view based in your truth as we see it in the scriptures that you've blessed us with? God, we want to be a people that's focused on 
objective truth that's focused on the realities of who you are as we see in your word. So God, whether that means we just need to get back into a habit of reading your word, whether it means we need to start a habit of every time we see something in creation of beauty that we immediately think of you and say, thank you, God. Father, we love you. We're grateful that we even get to worship you. So God, as you minister to the hearts and minds of people this morning, give them the strength and the courage to hear your voice and respond to it, whatever that needs to look like. And Father, may our praise of you this morning be pleasing to you as we shout for joy, as we come to you with thanksgiving for who you are. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.